Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa, and this is our show for the week of February 25th, 2019. On today's show, I eat some chicken and a peek behind the curtain to see how Disney's preparing its theme parks for long-term climate change. But first, let's bring in the man who looks at the new Mickey cheeseburger with toppings including American cheese, macaroni and cheese, cheese sauce, flaming hot Cheeto dust, and bacon, and thinks... This is a good start. One Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? On behalf of the American Dairy Council, I thank you, Lynn. <laughs> I actually ate this last week at Cosmic Rays, Jim. Wow. And Still and alive, alive to talk about it. I it was, was about to say, how long was the nap immediately afterwards? <laughs> it's true. I went up and went, I went up and took a nap. It was the last thing I did before I left. It was, I mean, undoubtedly. There's a lot of cheese going on in there. And, wow, and the yes. burger itself at Cosmic Race is just fine. Mm -hmm. It needed something spicy, like jalapenos. Would have been, and, and the bacon was a good start. It could have used a little bit more bacon, I thought. Yeah, something, something to sort of cut the, the, the creaminess of the cheese, mm. I think, would have been better. But uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was an experience. Also, I think it was like, if I recall correctly, like $13, $16, something like that, for the hamburger. Okay. I think it was, I think it was like, well, maybe it was $14, because... With the Coke, it was I think it was seventeen dollars with a Coke. Yeah, just a lot. There was there was nothing right about that meal, nothing at all, Jim. I'm beginning to think that the Disney theme parks and what happens to prices when you step through the TSA checkpoint at an airport. I think there's a parallel universe there. I mean, I don't know if yeah. you've been following the people who've been tweeting out the photos of their box of Mickey bars that they bought at their at local Publix. Yeah, and it's like seven fifty for a box of six of these things. We're in the park. You're paying five dollars and twenty five cents a piece. I sense an arbitrage opportunity, Jim. I, I perhaps. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Jim. Let's do a quick shout out to subscribers over at DisneyDish.Bandcamp.com. Thanks to new subscribers A. Stephen, Great H, Jonathan H, and Stephen from the UK, and longtime subscribers Robert Bob S. Kevin B. and David D. You know, Jim, I, uh, I ate it chicken guy over the weekend. I think this is turning into a food episode. Mm -hmm. And, you know, while I was sitting there trying to pick condiments and wondering to myself exactly what part of the donkey goes into making donkey sauce, I thought to myself, you know what this place needs? A chicken tender eating contest. And if we were going to do a chicken guy chicken tender eating contest, Jim, you know who had won in that inaugural group of people about to redefine the phrase high cholesterol? I would want A. Stephen Gray, Jonathan, Stephen from the UK, Robert, Kevin, and David there with us. So, gentlemen, next time you're at Disney Springs, start practicing. Like I said, Jim, I went to a chicken guy to, uh, to give it another shot uh, mm -hmm. last week, and I learned quite a few things. And those were? Well, remember when the, in, the, uh, in the original visit, I said that everything comes in uh, frozen boxes, and that was, that was totally wrong. It's, it's all made fresh. Mm -hmm. and, in, uh, and in retrospect, I should have known that because the chicken tenders really are juicy mm -hmm. and literally tender. I mean, they literally are tender chicken tenders. And it's definitely not the texture of, of chicken that's been frozen. I got to admit, they're better than average, too. I mean, it's not fine dining. Mm -hmm. If you want sophisticated chicken tenders, I think, still think uh, Terralina is the place to go. But Chicken Guy is decent fast food. So I learned that over the weekend. It wasn't bad at all. I also did some other uh, dining, which we'll uh, have to do in another episode because we're jam-packed full of news here on this episode. And uh, speaking of that, James, let's do the news now. Don't forget, Disney Dish News is brought to you by Storybook Destinations. 
trusted travel partner of the Disney Dish for a worry-free travel experience every time. Book online at storybookdestinations.com. All right, James, I want to get your, uh, your take on this. Disney seems to be testing out some new marketing slogans. We have a alert listener, Lucy H., sent in the following screen caps of a survey Disney sent out. Let me go through these with you. I want to get your reaction. Now, you and I haven't talked this yet, talked about this yet. This is a complete surprise to you, right? Yes, it is. So here's the question, and then I'll read it to you, the, uh, the statements. To the best of your knowledge, please indicate whether each of the following statements describing Walt Disney World, theme park tickets, hotel room rates, and vacation packages is true or false. If you're not sure, please select don't know. So here's the first statement. And Jim, I, I swear this, this first one, uh, it sounded like something you would write. Ready? Reserve a pachyderm in your pajamas. Buy tickets in advance to reserve attractions in advance. True or false? Does that sound like the Walt Disney World Resort theme park tickets, hotel room rates, and vacation packages? What would you say? <laughs> it, it's, it, it's, a, is, it's an unusual way to phrase the question, right? I was about to say, is was this a Scrabble challenge? <laughs> <laughs> This is the kind of thing that I would do in college after drinking boxed wine. Jim, I want you to associate a color with the following question I'm about to ask. <laughs> it doesn't seem like a true or false, does it? No. All right. Let me give you the next one. Ready? Okay. Reserve a safari from your sofa. Buy tickets in advance to reserve attractions in advance. True or false? I could get how you, you might drop that into a commercial or a print ad or that sort of thing. Sure. Okay. Speaking of print ads, I can visualize this one. Mm -hmm. Reserve a teacup from your couch. So imagine if you had like a circular couch that kind of looked like a teacup. Mm -hmm. Buy tickets in advance to reserve attractions in advance. So clearly the buy tickets in advance to reserve attractions in advance is sort of the the thing that they're going for there. Yeah. Now it looks like the lawyers come in. Mm -hmm. Uh, So here's the next one. With the Magic Your Way base tickets, the more you play, the less you pay per day. That's a mouthful. That eh, false. I don't know if that, that's officially alliteration, but okay. I <laughs> All right. Here's one where the lawyers and the copywriters who get paid by the word mm-hmm. came up with one. Deep breath on this one. For an additional charge, you can add admission to Walt Disney World Water Parks, Disney Quest, ESPN Wide World of Sports Complex, and Disney's Oak Trail Golf Course to any theme park ticket. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner, and Smith. I don't know that's what I'm going with on that. I don't know. You pick up on the, the problem with that one, right? I was asleep halfway through, Jim. I, I don't, hopefully Aaron can edit all of this back together. I was I was done halfway through that. You bought your ticket. You're headed over to Disney Quest right now. And as you get past <laughs> oh, the construction fence. I missed it. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, awkward. Yeah. Awkward. So, you know, again, tells you they're working <laughs> off of the up-to-date reference. Okay. Hey, so hey guys, guys flip, flip to the page that says 2019. Can I also purchase admission to Disney MGM Studios while I'm at it? <laughs> Right before we go on this Mr. Toad's Wild Ride thing, we're going we're yeah. to head on over there. Oh, boy. Oh, yeah. awkward. All right, here's the next one. Mm. All multi-day tickets have a six-month expiration period. Mm. Uh, it sounds like that's something you would advertise to a, an actuary convention. Yeah. Boring. We're getting into the fine print at the bottom of the page now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's not, no, not, not very good. Mm-hmm. No offense to the actuaries out there. I know you're all a swinging group, uh, group of people. Yep. All right. Spacious family suites at Walt Disney World with three sleeping areas, two bathrooms, and a kitchenette. It sounds like something on HGTV. 
Honestly, I mean, I don't, I don't know what we're doing here. I was about to say <laughs> sleeping areas. Sleeping areas. They're not bedrooms anymore, Jim. Yeah, Welcome to the 21st like century. A comfortable pile of wood shavings, <laughs> lead. And, you know, just... I believe the term they're looking for here is barn. Uh. <laughs> actually, okay. I actually like the next one. I think, I think it's kind of catchy. Mm-hmm. Close to the parks, far beyond compare. Disney Deluxe Resorts. Okay, yeah. That's not bad. That's not bad. Yeah. Close to the parks, far beyond compare. Yeah, you kind of get the play on words there. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. There are, uh, next one. There are lots of magical reasons to stay at a Disney Resort hotel. Special benefits let you get around with ease, enjoy extra time with family, and much more. Okay, they had me till the extra time with family. And if they, they knew my family, they'd understand. Yeah. They, not, not, a, not a selling point with lots of people. All right. For one price, you can purchase Memory Maker and receive digital images of all... Of your Disney photo pass photos taken during your Walt Disney World visit. Eh. I don't know if that's enough to, honey, get me the plane ticket. Yeah, it's just, it's not the thing that makes me run to Expedia, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. The thing, uh, by the way, I was I was doing um, uh, an update to an official guide for, for the next edition, mm-hmm. and I had to explain the difference between Memory Maker and PhotoPass. And you want to talk about splitting hairs, Jim? Mm. Like, for a company who does branding so well, mm-hmm. I was trying to explain the difference between Memory Maker and PhotoPass. And what it came down to was this. PhotoPass is the service. Mm-hmm. Memory Maker is the thing you buy. But why don't they just call it all PhotoPass and be like PhotoPass albums? Why does it have to be two separate names? Mm. I didn't get that. I'm sure there's a technical explanation that I'm missing, but yeah, yeah. it was bothering me. Okay. All right. Here's the uh, the next slogan. You never forget the first time their dreams come true. Again, if we're marketing to... Say the grandparent market or the young adult market, people who've just had kids. That's a smart play. All right. And speaking of that grandparent market, the next one, join the Grand Adventure today in the Grand Adventures Capitalized, mm-hmm. where grandparents and grandchildren are on an adventure of a lifetime and make it even grander when you share it with the whole family. Okay. I, I think they could have lost that last sentence and been okay yeah. with it. Yeah. <laughs> but again, you, you've always described the room that has the giant wheel with the, the magic, the wishes, and family yeah. is somewhere on that wheel then. Grand. Yeah, actually, grand is an underused word for them. They could uh, they could keep doing that. I get it. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, two more. Buy tickets in advance to reserve attractions in advance. That's the second sentence from the first couple that we saw. And then the last one, reserve a hug from home. I need to see the visual for this one, Jim. Buy tickets in advance to reserve attraction in in advance. Okay. They seem to be more like slogans, right? Now, what was the one reserve from your sofa that was number two? Reserve a safari from your sofa. Buy tickets in advance to reserve attractions in advance. I mean, I I think you get a sense of what this campaign is going to be. The visuals are going to power this. Yeah. Somebody sitting there with their tablet, they swipe, and our next image is them being hugged by Mickey or them leaning out of a troop carrier looking at a gazelle or something like that. But do you think this is the interim campaign between now and the 50th? Or are we looking at possibly how they're looking to position themselves for the 50th? I think looking at these, they're trying to sell very specific Disney amenities, like the buying tickets in advance to reserve attractions in advance. Mm-hmm. That is a specific benefit that people might not know about. Yeah. So I think what they're looking for here is slogans that communicate both the fun of Walt Disney World and the specific benefit you get by giving Disney your money as far in advance as possible. Interesting. Right, the two things that Disney wants. So that could be it, right? It could be that you know, they don't want people to delay mm-hmm. 
booking their Walt Disney World trip because they have this problem every couple of years, right? They get into this lull where nothing's opening for a year, 18 months, two years or whatever. Mm -hmm. And people might be waiting to the next big thing. That's what we've been hearing, you know, for the past six months or so about yeah. things stalling out uh, reservation-wise because of Galaxy's Edge. So Yeah, so this might be a way to get people off the couches, so to speak, mm -hmm. and get them to start committing earlier in advance. So I think the, the thing about buying tickets in advance to reserve attractions in advance is carrot and stick. Mm-hmm approach for Disney. Speaking of which, we'll talk about more of that about that in a second. But I think that's where they're going with that. Okay. Could we go back just one more time to the, the first sure. one? Book a pachyderm in your pajamas? With the, the reserve a pachyderm? No. Yeah. It, it should be. Yeah. It should be pick a pachyderm in your pajamas. It's reserve a... You know what that is? <laughs> that reminds me of the Groucho Marx. I was about to say. I was about to say. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> this morning I shot, a, I shot an elephant in my pajamas. How we got in my pajamas, I'll never know. Oh, yeah, I just, I'm sorry. <laughs> that has to be acknowledged. <laughs> as soon as you said, let's go back to the first thing, and I read it again, yeah. I was like, I know where Jim is going with this. <laughs> All right. So here's our challenge to our listeners. Yeah, come up with your own slogan. Like reserve a pachyderm in your pajamas. Tweet it out to us at Salentesta, at Jim Hill Media, or the at Disney Dish Podcast. Tell us what your slogan is. If you have a visual to go with it, uh, even better. Keep it clean, folks, because mm -hmm. don't forget the family reads yep. Twitter. All right, Jim, uh, we're going to take a quick commercial break here. Coming up after our break, what if everything we thought we knew about Disney's parking fees and no housekeeping credits was wrong? We'll tell you what new things we found that make a lot more sense, at least to me, right after this. All right, we're back. Okay, Jim. So, uh, Jim, we've wondered before on the show about how, and even if, the Disney company is preparing its theme parks and the cruise line to deal with climate change, right? We've, we've talked about this before, right? Yeah. It's kind of our cultural narrative right now, and, and Disney is part of our culture. So, Right. So we've talked about things like how we've measured the heat index in the Magic Kingdom to in August, where the temperature and the humidity can make it feel like it's... 120 degrees in the parks. And we've talked a couple of times about how there's a decent chance that due to rising sea levels, Disney's 99-year lease for Castaway Key could find the island halfway underwater or more by the time the lease is up in 2098. So Disney needed to look elsewhere, and that's why they're at Lighthouse Point now in the Bahamas. But the question we've always asked is whether there's anyone at Disney who's actively planning for a future, whether it's you know 10 or 20 or 30 years from now, where the environment is vastly different than it is now. And it turns out that, yes, Disney is actually working on this in a number of ways. They're not talking about it publicly, mm -hmm. but the policies that they're putting in place are fascinating. And when you look at some of Disney's recent decisions, especially their theme park decisions, in the context of those policies, a lot of things start to make a lot more sense. Like how? All right, so... I was working on uh, on this for the unofficial guide, and this is uh, where, where I was going with this. So if you do a search, uh, a Google search, Jim, for uh, Disney Global Warming Policy, which is how I started this whole thing, mm -hmm. the first thing that comes up is a Harvard Business School article titled Climate Change in the Happiest Place on Earth, mm -hmm. written by a then-former cast member named Caroline Hennemarian. And it opens by pointing out some really important points, and I'm quoting here from the paper. Climate change poses serious threats to the vitality of the global tourism industry. For the Walt Disney Company, a decline in leisure travel would put parks and resorts, the company's most iconic asset, and its second largest revenue stream at risk. 
The ramifications of global warming threaten the future profitability of the Disney Parks business model in three key ways. Decreased tourism demand, increased operating costs, and the spread of negative public perception of energy-intensive leisure activities. You still with me on this, Jim? I feel like this is the McNair Lair report right here. I love this popping the hood stuff. Go on, go on. All right, so the uh, the next section talks about what they mean by you know, declining demand mm-hmm. in tourism. And here's what it says. Increased variability in weather patterns. That's, I think, technical speak for it's hot as hell. Mm-hmm. Will have a direct negative impact on the desire to visit certain destinations, including Disney Park locations such as California and Florida. There are also a multitude of indirect impacts that threaten demand for leisure travel worldwide. For example, the increased cost of air travel and increased variability of flight patterns may dampen consumer demand. Further, political and economic instability resulting from a threatened food supply may impact desire to travel to certain geographies. Fair enough, right? We get that. It could be hot. People don't want to go to Florida when it's hot. Same thing with California, right? This past month, this is February. This is when Mm -hmm. people go to Florida because it's supposed to be pleasant. It was 83, Lynn. Jim, it was 80. It's 87 this week, Jim. <laughs> it's almost 90. <laughs> yeah. And, and again, for February, that's a little extreme. It goes on to say that uh, Disney Parks and Resorts operates 11, quote, gates, theme parks in six geographies and sales four ships globally, consuming massive amounts of energy and water and generating waste each year. And this is the part where it gets interesting. Although the company doesn't report out park-specific statistics, in 2014, total company greenhouse gas emissions, excluding movie productions, was reported at 1.63 million metric tons of CO2 equivalents. Mm -hmm. So that is super interesting because I've never seen that written before. I've never seen Disney's total corporate carbon footprint in writing, 1.63 million metric tons. Disney has tracked this sort of stuff right from the beginning. In fact, I actually went back and was reading, I want to say Popular Mechanics did a piece Mm -hmm. just prior to the opening of Walt Disney World in October of 71, and they were talking about how at that point they had figured that on average the typical guest as they came through the door at the park generated 1.5 pounds of trash. These sorts of things are weirdly part of things that Disney keeps track of. Oh, I was uh, I was actually surprised to uh, to hear that they did. So here's the here's where it goes on. Uh, the report says further, further the segments that is the theme parks cost of goods sold, like mm-hmm. the, the the amount of money they have to pay to actually make the things that they sell. Mm-hmm. Namely, food and beverage inventory will become increasingly costly as the global food supply is put at risk. Mm -hmm. And then separately, Disney says this, increased operating and maintenance costs associated with increased demand on operations, including HVAC systems, if measures are not taken to ensure low-cost alternatives for cooling and managing extreme temperatures, this will not only negatively impact our customer experience, it will also impact our ability to attract and retain visitor numbers. Again, mm-hmm. if it gets super hot in Florida and it costs us more money to air condition the place, people are going to stop coming. Mm-hmm. So uh, the next part of the article discusses what Disney's doing to fight climate change or to get ready for it. Okay. And here's where the really, really interesting things come. The company is, has brought sustainability to the forefront of its strategic plan, setting ambitious 2020 goals reducing net emissions by 50% from 2012 levels, achieving 60% waste diverted from landfills and incineration, and maintaining potable water consumption at 2013 levels. The next section is titled Carbon Tax. Mm -hmm. And this is the thing I didn't know. In the absence of coordinate global legislation, Disney has a self-imposed carbon tax, allocating the cost of efforts to reduce or offset emissions to business units based on that unit's proportional contribution 
to the company's overall emissions. I had absolutely no idea, Jim, mm -hmm. that Disney has internally its own carbon tax on each business unit. Did you know this? I did not. Super surprised. Mm -hmm. So uh, apparently parks and resorts have, uh, the Disney company as a whole has a carbon goal, right? Which they, I don't think they publicize very much. Everybody pays into it mm -hmm. based on their carbon footprint. And the way that you get credits, the way you pay less is by doing things that help the environment, sustainable energy, recycling, and so on. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so uh, as an example of uh, a credit, one is the solar farm in Orlando. Mm -hmm. So Disney originally built a five megawatt facility back in what, 2000, 2000, 2001? Yeah, this is the one that they built. The five megawatt one, I believe, is the, the one that one. they're, uh, them and uh, Duke. Uh, right, doing. exactly. Yes, yes, yes. This is the one next to Epcot Center, the 48,000 solar panel thing. The other thing that they did uh, that they mentioned is the Disney Conservation Fund, mm -hmm. founded in 1995. The Conservation Fund has given over $40 million to enhance the study of wildlife, mm -hmm. the protection of habitats, the development of community conservation and education programs, mm -hmm. and experiences that connect kids to nature across the globe. The article uh, ends with a set of recommendations. Current programs have proven successful, with the company having reduced 34% net emissions by 2015 while on its way to its goal of 50% by 2020. Mm -hmm. This isn't surprising because for large businesses like Disney, large improvements can often be made in short periods of time mm -hmm. as the company sort of gets rid of its low-hanging fruit projects. However, Disney will need to get more creative in the future. Here are some ideas. Tell me if any of these ideas sound familiar, Jim. Mm -hmm. uh, number one, influencing guest behaviors through carrots, like discounts on public transportation to access the parks, i.e. subsidized bus transportation. We've already got that. That's right. May 2005, the Magical Express came online. The stats I've got here, Len, have got to be wrong, though, or at least for today. They say as of 2009, they had 6,000 riders per day with a, strike that over annual, so that's 2.3 million. That's got to be higher now, right? It's got to be higher than that, yeah. Okay. The other uh, influencing guest behavior that they say is convenient water bottle refill stations around the park. Mm -hmm. I don't think they've done this, have they? I think that's a revenue stream that, you know, that's a little dear to them. I yeah. would imagine that might be something they'll circle <laughs> At around. At $4 a soda, you start to wonder how much global warming the planet can actually hold, right? <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. Just mm -hmm. kidding. All right. So remember, the article talks about a carrot and stick approach. Those are the carrots. Mm -hmm. Here are the sticks. One, charging extra for daily housekeeping. Mm -hmm. Two, doubling overnight parking fees. They held off on that for quite a while. We, we only saw that start March of last year, 2018. That's right. But this is interesting, right? Because the whole carrot and stick thing, mm -hmm. if you think about that, mm -hmm. a lot of what Disney's doing around transportation makes a whole lot more sense. Oh, sure. When you view it that way, right? So, so the subsidized bus transportation that Caroline mentions in the article Obviously, applies to Magical Express, like you said, but also you know the internal internal bus system mm -hmm. that runs inside of Walt Disney World, right, between the parks and the resorts. Yep. But it's also the Skyliner, right? Interesting, interesting. Okay. Right, and yeah. so and couple that with the thing about the solar farm, right? So back when this article was written in 2015, mm -hmm. the solar farm was five megawatts. Now they expanded it last year mm -hmm. from five megawatts to 50 megawatts, mm -hmm. ten times larger than the first one, and able to provide enough power for around 10,000 homes. 
So granted, 50 megawatts sounds like a lot. Mm -hmm. For the record, Disney says they consume 1.76 billion megawatts, Mm. (laughs) megawatt hours of electricity. So it's a tiny fraction of what Disney needs, but it's a start, right? The reference she's making to 2013 and goals for 2020 and that sort of thing. Look at March of 2012. And this is when Disney does its first tests on property for the articulated buses. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's not until they do another test the following July. And finally, it's April of 2014 where it's okay. We get that we can move 112 people at at one time as opposed to 60, but they double down the following year. And that's when they start using a renewable diesel to run the fleet. So, Oh, biodiesel? Yeah. Really? They're running biodiesel for the fleet? I didn't know that. Well, again, renewable diesel. I don't know about the biodiesel. And as long as we're talking about gas, I mean, you know, the switching over to the Disney Cruise Line now. Back in uh, March of 2016, when Iger announces that there are two more ships, you know, coming for the fleet. But the difference is that these two will be powered by liquefied natural gas. And and then the following year, they double down and announce we're adding a third ship and that too will be powered by LNG. So Disney actually uh, explained this in uh, in one of the reports. They Mm -hmm. said... um, and I'll, I'll quote this, fuel and energy taxes and regulations could affect our operations in one or more regions mm-hmm. in the world by increasing operational costs. For example, Disney says, regulations could restrict the marine fuels that our cruise ships may use mm-hmm. to more expensive grades of fuel. So it looks like there, they're doing two things. The liquid natural gas uh, fuels that they're doing are supposedly emit 25% fewer greenhouse gases mm-hmm. uh, than the diesel that they're using. So again, that's sort of a, a win-win for them and in their, in their uh, internal climate fund, right? It reduces the amount of money that the cruise line has to pay into the carbon tax fund. The other area we really have to talk about here, and you, you touched on it at the starting point, you know, the whole notion of people, as they're trooping around the parks, they don't want to spend the entire time sweating or burning alive. The weird thing is that Disney has, in the past, try to adjust parks so that they can work in in extreme climates. I mean, for example, uh, when Tokyo Disneyland opened in April of 83, they Mm -hmm. put the entire Main Street area basically under an equivalent of the Crystal Palace. It became the World Bazaar, but it kept people out of the weather and uh, allowed them to shop. April of 1992, when they opened Euro Disneyland, they built the Liberty and Discovery Arcades, which ran behind both sides of Main Street. And depending on if if you were clever enough and could stay under overhangs and rooftops, you could literally travel from the Disneyland Hotel into that park and make it as deep into that Magic Kingdom as far as Fantasyland on the Liberty Arcades aside. And and I want to say you could actually make it all the way to Discovery Mountain on the Discovery side. I think you can't because I've done this before. Uh, One of the times where I was in in the park. Yep. It was raining, and I, I used the arcades to get mm-hmm. much the way through. I think, I'm thinking almost all the way to uh, to Big Thunder. I can't oh. remember exactly where I was. Yeah, yeah. Previously, they have done lands. I mean, that are under a roof. I mean, if you think about how big the land is at Epcot, or likewise Wonders of Life when it was open. Yeah, that's a considerable amount of acreage under one roof. Likewise, uh, Mermaid Lagoon for Tokyo Disney Seas. And yep. when you mentioned that you were going to be talking about this topic on this show, I called a friend at Disney and they said, what's kind of interesting is they've actually sent people over to Dubai, to the Motion oh, yeah. Gate Dubai Park, which opened back in December of 2016. 
Yep. And so much of that park is literally lands under one roof. Because, again, the hot season in Dubai lasts 4.3 months from May, middle of May to the, the tail end of September with an average daily high temperature above 100 degrees. Yeah. And if we are headed in this direction, we have to not only build queues that provide cover, but we mm -hmm. have to provide queues that cool. How are we going to do that? What do we do going forward if if we do find ourselves in this version of Florida? Because that's the other thing, Lynn, that earlier this month, Joshua Johnson on NPR's 1A show actually did an entire episode called Storm Clouds and Sunshine, How Florida Prepares for Climate Change. And the whole point of the show is that the two aspects of Florida's economy that are most vulnerable. Are Tourism and agriculture. That's it, exactly. <laughs> was it? Was yeah. It, I think real estate would be a number three. Yeah. And in fact, it's, it's so interesting that you, you mentioned real estate because as part of this show, they had an economist on who mentioned that there's a number of forward-thinking folks in Florida who yeah. are now planning on selling their beachfront property within the next five to 10 years with the belief oh, yeah. That with the sea rise, and, and remember, in the Tampa area right now, it's projected between now and mid-century, they're going to see a sea rise of six to maybe as high as over two feet. Six inches to two feet. Yeah. And so it's just one of these things where it's like, if you're going to get the maximum valuable value for your property, you need to sell within the next five to 10 years. Otherwise, you have a lovely view of, of the sea because it's in your living room. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. That's the thing with a lot of this. I mean, a six inch to a two foot rise isn't going to bring water to a lot of people's doorstep. Mm -hmm. But what it's going to do is when it's going to turn minor storms into major problems, mm -hmm. because at, from that point, uh, you know, six inches to two feet mm -hmm. uh, rise. If you get a storm surge of another foot or two feet, yep. uh, all of a sudden, yeah, it's in, there's there's now water in your living room, mm -hmm. whereas before it was. It was still a ways away. So it reduces the margin for error mm -hmm. in uh, any other things. But That's what's going to happen. Lynn, I mean, you know, since 1900, we've seen a one foot rise in, in the level of the seas around Florida. And and when you're a state where how much of the state is it at basically at sea level? All right. Yeah. I think most of the, not much of the state is above six feet, right? No. So yeah, you've already lost one. The one place because it was mostly built on swampland that is best prepared for this sort of thing is Walt Disney World. When Walt, brought in General Joe Potter from the 1964 World's Fair. I mean, this is the guy mm -hmm. who had built the Pano, you know, you know. Oh, it, out of the swamps in the, <laughs> the swamps of New York. And yeah. all that. And so yeah. he, prior to actual construction of Walt Disney World, he put in 50 miles worth of drainage canals. There's the system of 19 automated gates that basically, given Florida's traditional cycle of uh, drought and flood, the notion was that they had to stabilize the groundwater around the, you know, where they wanted to build the resort. And once that right. was settled, they, they could go forward. So they actually have this system in place. The problem is that, you know, it's built to handle the 50-year storm. And the problem is yeah. the 50-year storm is now happening every two and three years. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the storm we're supposed to get once every half century is coming yeah, twice, twice every decade. Yeah. So. yeah. The thing that I was interested in going back to the, this carrot and stick approach is the thing that Caroline mentioned about the uh, charging extra for daily housekeeping mm -hmm. is that Disney found a way to implement that, but in reverse. Remember, in start of, instead of charging for daily housekeeping, they actually gave people a credit for not using housekeeping. And remember, we originally thought that this was how 
Disney was dealing with a shortage of housekeeping staff. It's one of those things where, as the kids say, uh, Disney figured out how to feed two birds with one scone. Yeah. Right? <laughs> oh, I'm, right? I'm it's stealing the, it's that. The, I love that. Okay. Well, it's th- thank you for, I think it was the people for the ethical treatment of animals uh, suggestion. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, yeah. but uh, So, Disney was probably looking at two problems here mm-hmm. and saying, you know what? Chocolate and peanut butter. Just this week, I forget who it was that tweeted out. The photo of they were staying at Kidani Village, and in the time it took them to go out to the parks and come back, they had removed all of their teeny tiny shampoos and that sort of thing and done the whole, you know, screwed into the wall, hand soap, you know, shampoo, conditioner thing. And I was kind of surprised to see, even at Kidani Village, even in a Disney Vacation Club resort, that they're going that route. Environmentally friendly, Jim. There we go. So. Fewer things you're throwing away. Mm-hmm. So a lot of this uh, uh, information in this Harvard Business School article was confirmed in a uh, response that uh, Disney's SVP of Enterprise Social Responsibility, I think this is Alyssa Margolis, mm-hmm. gave to an organization called the Climate Defense Project, CDP, in response to uh, questions about Disney's policies on climate change. So one of the things that uh, that the CDP asked Disney, for example, and how they responded is this, mm-hmm. provide details of how your organization uses an internal price on carbon. And so Disney said... Uh, Disney's response was the, quote, Climate Solutions Fund, quote, is the name given to the company's internal carbon pricing program. This program essentially places an internal tax on carbon emissions, giving business units an incentive to reduce their carbon emissions. The program also places a known cost on carbon emissions, which allows the business segments to more accurately determine cost-effective efficiency projects to undertake. To achieve our long-term goal of zero net greenhouse gas emissions, the company strives to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, and invest in high-quality carbon offset projects. The costs of the carbon offset projects are charged back to individual business units at a rate proportional to their contribution to the company's overall carbon footprint. Thus, our businesses are now exposed to an internal carbon price. So that, I mean, to me, this puts a lot of recent Disney decisions in a whole new light. I mean... I agree. Look, it still bothered me back in March of last year when, you know, suddenly overnight we have a $13 fee to park at a value resort right, or 19 right. for the moderates and 24 for the deluxes, but they're trying to save the planet. So here's the thing I can't figure out. If Disney would have said, we're implementing these overnight parking fees it's and it's part of our larger carbon reduction initiative. Mm-hmm. I could have got behind that. I would have been more accepting of it. Mm-hmm. I still don't understand why it's a different fee for each kind of resort. That doesn't make much sense. But if you would have told me, look, you know, we're trying to discourage people from driving, mm-hmm. especially from the airport. And the way that we're going to do that is a carrot and stick approach. The carrot is Magical Express and the Skyliner. The stick is parking fees. Mm-hmm. I can wrap my head around that, right? It's a plan. It's logical. It makes sense. I, I could have gotten behind that. Why didn't Disney push that angle? I'm almost hesitant to bring this up. But when you think about in today's America, how climate, I mean, every time it gets cold during the winter and it's like, yeah, climate change. Bush, you wish we'd have some more climate change. <laughs> you know, some global warming. Yeah, yeah I, I just wonder how much of this is the decision that given that, you know, there's a, a fairly big chunk of the populace that doesn't buy into global warming or climate change, that they might bury the needle in negative about this. That was my feeling too. But the thing is, I've, I've seen the surveys mm-hmm. that say, you know, X percent of Americans don't think climate change is happening or whatever. But but do you think that they actually believe that, that it's actually true? Or do you think it's something that they say when they know they're being surveyed? Like, for example, 
if you were to survey me about whether Elvis Presley is alive or dead, mm-hmm. I would definitely say that I believed Elvis Presley was alive, mm-hmm. right? Whereas he's probably dead, right? But but in my heart, I believe, right, that he's alive. But, but you think that it's the same thing with climate change, that people just say that as sort of like a tribal identity thing, that they, they know what they're expected to say if they belong to a certain... I will go you one better here, Len. You know, I yeah. believe when it comes to Elvis, I cannot help notice the correlation between Elvis dies and immediately after the number of Bigfoot sightings go up. I it's honestly true. believe true. that if you know if you were to catch up with you know a Sasquatch in the Pacific Northwest and got to him for you know you could actually hear him under his breath singing "Love Me Tender." I think I really. <laughs> it's, it's, I, I would go with "Burning Love," but okay, it's your it's your it's your fantasy, Jim. You go with it. There we go. <laughs> That's what's going on. He no, but, just he, but you're right. You know, he just you're, walked out the door of Graceland and he's been wandering the wilderness ever since but you're right about the about the you know the disney publicizing thing it's a, the larger point is, is probably true half the country would love it half the country would hate it and there's no there's no winning that yep. Yep. that debate for disney so there's no point in publicizing it but i think the other thing that disney would run into is this mm-hmm. like you know like a lot of a lot of taxes designed to change behavior you can never apply it perfectly right for example disney's got magical express and parking fees is the carrot and stick approach i get that for people who are flying to Walt Disney World. Fine. So they don't rent cars. Mm-hmm. Got it. But the break-even for car, uh, greenhouse gas emissions on airplanes and cars seems to be around 250 miles each way. Mm-hmm. Less than that, and it's more efficient to drive a family of four, I think. Mm-hmm. You know, More than that, it's probably more efficient to fly. But almost everyone in Florida, which is a huge trunk of Walt Disney World visitors, mm-hmm. is within 250 miles of, of Walt Disney World. So the most effective thing that they can do is drive. Mm-hmm. So if the overnight parking fee is a tax to encourage the you know the right carbon behavior, it's hitting Floridians for making the correct choice. Yeah. And given what's happening to their state already, they're being hit pretty hard already. So, Right. I mean, they, they could start exempting Floridians from it, but then you get this multi-step process where you have to prove you're a Floridian mm-hmm. or a Florida resident like they do with tickets. And I'm told by people who actually work in the ticket booths yep. that there's a rampant amount of fraud going on there too. Yeah. Uh, maybe just Disney thinks it's just not worth all of it to dangle out the exemption. I mean, maybe that's it. But the uh, the other thing that I think is fascinating about this, mm-hmm. and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll end on this note, is that Disney's trying to do something that the U.S. government and the state government can't. Mm-hmm. It's basically imposing a consumption tax like this. And then if you'd have to wonder whether people, even people who prefer this sort of thing, would rather see a company do it than a government. I suppose you can always opt out of the company tax, though, whereas you can't for a government. So, well, yeah. You know, really interesting policy, though. I'd, no, I agree. I, I, I agree. And I, I'm, I'm glad somebody is taking the lead here, even if it has to be Mickey. So... I'm absolutely fine with it. I think it, it was super interesting. I was originally when I read it, I was surprised they weren't publicizing more. Mm-hmm. As I started to read it, now I understand why okay. from a human behavior perspective. Uh, anyway, very interesting well, thing. Fascinating. Thank you for digging that up. No problem. Thank you, Jim. Mm-hmm. Thank you for being on the show. Mm-hmm. All right. That's going to do it for our show today. Over the next couple of weeks for Bandcamp subscribers, we've got a couple of Bandcamp exclusive shows coming up dedicated to the best and worst restaurants around property, best and worst hotels, and even more. We are produced fabulously by Aaron Adams, the rootinest, tootinest cowboy in the West. And by West, I mean Indianapolis. Close enough. Don't forget to go on iTunes and write our show and tell us what you'd like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We'll see you on our next show. <laughs>